Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, it's been it's literally finding- your question. It's your question. Oh crap! That's right. <laughs> oh, you got it. That's amazing. I'm leaving that in. Ah, I was no. like, that's the best question we've ever had in an intro. <laughs> oh y'all. <laughs> There's our cold open. <laughs> I laughed with the cat lawyer thing, by the way, y'all. You're listening to the CXMH podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vohr, and I am here as always with my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hi, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with author Allison Fallon about how writing can help to process your life, the impact it can have on your mental health and general well-being, and her new book, The Power of Writing It Down, A Simple Habit to Unlock Your Brain and Reimagine Your Life. But first, Mm. Holly, how are you doing this week? Hey Robert, I am. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing. Uh, I I love recording these intros. I know we say that all the time, but it's <laughs> so fun. You know, it's just like a little relax coming here and chit chat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And the the room that I'm in, I know in last intro, yes, you said, hey, it looks pretty good. It's like I think all the all the pieces that we have for it right now are done. So I'm in this cool <laughs> swivel chair. You can see me swiveling. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, so it's nice. It's a much it's a much calmer uh, room than it was before mm-hmm. this when it was kind of just like a. Oh no, I'm working from home uh-huh. for an undeterminate uh, amount of time. So mm-hmm. let's just makeshift one one rectangle that shows up on screen for uh-huh. work, and the rest of it's chaos. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, it's a, little, it's a little calmer vibe in here. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. Yeah, I've loved getting to see. I know you've sent some of the pictures of you know different corners in the room that you've you know updated and your closet. And what yeah. I loved is that like your closet is like filled with musical instruments and the closet that's connected to my I hope that's okay for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the closet yeah. that's connected to my office has like all my art stuff in it and it's just you know it's just fun. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. Your pottery that we talked about last week. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh my gosh. That's right. The pottery. Yeah. Man. Well, yeah. what have you been up to this week? Yeah, not uh, a ton. Uh, kind of the same same things as usual. I don't know about anything exciting other than kind of getting this room uh, in, in the way that we want it. And then uh, what mm-hmm. was our guest room? We're rearranging that so that Gray can move in there um, and be mm-hmm. kind of a, his big boy room. And then the nursery will then... I don't know if I ever told you this. When uh, you brought this up on the show last time, I ended up cutting it out during editing <gasps> to, you did? just for time purposes. Yeah. Oh, my so, gosh. Uh, the nursery so will so- end up being oh, used again. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. So yay, big congratulations to y'all. Thank you. Yeah, so just all that kind of moving parts and rearranging things and along with, you know, just the normal seeing clients and editing the the show. I I know you liked a tweet earlier where I was editing this episode actually yes. sitting in my car outside of the vet while Knox was getting a dental exam. So, mm. you know, just making it work. That's awesome. Yep. One day at a time, right? Yeah. But what about y'all? Yeah, well, we well right now when we're recording this, I mean, I'm looking at my window and it is just covered in ice. Like Waco is completely just had this big ice storm come through yesterday, and it's yeah. supposed to stay below freezing um, for about a week. So we're kind of like Waco's all getting ready wow. for that. But which for us is, you know, that's we're I mean, we're just not prepared for that. So it's been interesting, right? But right, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this week overall, it's been good. I mean, there's uh, a few things we've kind of been juggling. We had this last week, though, which was really fun. I got to chat with one of our previous guests, Jesse Fox. He and myself and um, Hmm. our friend Joe Courier, who our listeners may get to hear about later this season. Um, The three of us got to um, do a panel together for the American Counseling Association 
talking about how we see the role of religion and spirituality in each of our respective disciplines. So Jesse got to talk about it as it relates to counseling. I talked about it as it relates to social work. And Joe got to talk about it within uh, psychology. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then... Um, and then I got to talk with our friend Brittany Moses last week too. So that was fun. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was a lot of fun getting to chat with her. So yeah, so it's been, I mean, it's been a full week. It's just, it just feels like a little dizzying. I mean, especially with this weather, like a week ago, it yeah. was 80 degrees out here and now it's like 20, but you know, it's Texas. Yeah. So <laughs> I have a question for you, though, this week. I'm going to be the one to ask the question, if that's okay. It is not as, like, amazing as your questions, but that's okay. I know we've talked about different ways that, you know, you are are doing more writing and leaning into more writing. Have you – is there a writing ritual or a tool that you use when it comes to your writing that's been really helpful or just something that's really unique to your practice of writing? No, because I haven't been very good at it. I actually, in this episode, I asked a question that is phrased as a hypothetical about my non-success. Um, no, I'll say this. the it's It's been a thing that you and I have talked about for a long time, actually, in terms of kind of my struggles with like wanting to do more writing and then like kind mm-hmm. of not having any kind of success with it. But I think it's a thing that I've held kind of a, a looser grip on uh, mm-hmm. by design. Instead of saying like, okay, I need to do this and then feeling kind of that pressure, I think I've obviously partially over kind of like a pandemic summer, right? I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm Mm -hmm. just going to kind of let this go. But then even as we got back into the swing of this, like kind of my my unstructured time tends to go towards editing and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I'm still kind of experimenting with some things and trying to learn more about what is helpful for me. And I know you and I have talked about some of this previously, not on the Mm -hmm. show, but just in terms of like the flow of my day, when do I have uh, creative energy for lack of a better term or um, Mm -hmm. using like kind of blocking out like red time and blue time where red time is like Mm -hmm. get tasks done and blue time is kind of more creative type thing. And so Mm -hmm. not, not much to, to report on in terms of like, Hey, Scrivener has really helped, you know, but I remember when we recorded this, I thought, oh gosh, a lot of this is like poking at me. Mm-hmm. Same with the kind of mm-hmm. Hannah Brenchers episode. And yes. uh, there, was like yes. three, there was like three or four episodes right in a row where I was like, okay, fine. Um, but then yeah. editing back through now, you know, it's been a couple weeks or months or however since we uh-huh. recorded this editing back through, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Like it mm-hmm. brought it all back kind of to mind. So yeah, so we'll see. That's awesome. That was a really long way of saying, no, I no. still am bad at writing. But um, No, stop. Do not. Okay. <laughs> please don't shame yourself. Please don't shame yourself. Like I think, you know, it's a practice, right? Like that's a lot of what we talk about too in this episode is the fact that it is a practice and it's not something that we can be perfect at right away, but it's, you know, just showing up as best you can and you yeah. know, with each day that you're able to do some writing, even if it's 15 minutes or if it's 20 or an hour or whatever you can do. So that's going to yeah. be – I'm, I'm going to like make this your homework this week. It's like you have to find one window oh, for 15 minutes. Look at this. The professor is coming out. One, one window, <laughs> 15 minutes mm. to write. Okay? Can you do that? Man, uh, if you had me as a student, particularly in anything up until grad school, in grad school, I was a great student. Like in my entire life before that, I was a very bad student. So we'll see how this homework goes. Um, But that's awesome. Yeah. But what about you in terms of I know you have probably of all the people that I know on like a personal Mm. level, the most kind of consistent writing rhythm or like habit, right? That that seems to Mm -hmm. like genuinely work pretty well for you based on like the amount of things that I see you Mm. writing either like academic writing or other things that I've read of yours right um so what about you what's like maybe if there's one kind of like this is the most helpful thing I've found and again for listeners right like we're we're being descriptive not prescriptive so we're not saying exactly right yes you will be good at writing but yes for you what what's been the most helpful yeah as far as like what has been most helpful for for my writing, I think it's been tuning into whatever the best time of day is for me to write. There have been seasons in which writing later in the day has been really good for me. But like now with where I am, the best thing, it really is just that regular rhythm. It's 
waking up early before everyone else wakes up. I was not a morning person before, so I really do want to emphasize that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm not going to tell folks to go wake up at like 5 a.m. <laughs> right, to go yeah. right, unless that's what works for you, which for me, that's what's working in this season. But but waking up early, practicing centering prayer, making my coffee because Lord knows I need that. And then um, just sitting and watching the sunrise in my little corner office and writing as much as I can. So it's the timepiece is most helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. But even, I mean, that's, that said, like I still, I really loved this episode. I learned a lot from it too. And I remember thinking like, gosh, I hope my faculty Mm -hmm. end up picking up this book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I really loved this episode. What about you? Yeah, I loved it too. I mean, I know reading through the book, a lot of things jumped out and then we mm-hmm. managed to bring some of them up. This, you know, we only have an amount of time, but uh, a lot of things she said, I think were, were fantastic. I mean, and without like going through and naming them all because so much of it was so good, but, you know, talking about writing and editing being two kind of separate things and all that, you know, I think that is something that has traditionally not been a, probably a strength of mine because I try to get it right on the first try and so you know mm. um and so yeah i loved it all right you think we should get out of the way let let folks get to listen to this one yeah here is our interview with allison fallon all right enjoy y'all all right so today we are so excited to be joined by allison fallon she is the author of the power of writing it down which we'll talk about a lot today as well as the author of Packing Light and Indestructible. She is a speaker and the founder of Find Your Voice, a community that supports anyone who wants to write anything, which is, I just love the the way that's phrased. (laughs) It's awesome. She's helped leaders of multinational corporations, stay-at-home moms, Olympic gold medalists, individuals overcoming addictions, political figures, prison inmates, all sorts of people use the Find Your Voice method as a powerful tool to generate positive change in their lives. She's lived all over the country in the past decade, but right now lives in Pasadena, California with her husband and daughter. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, Yeah. super excited to have you on the show. Is there anything else about yourself that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, what's funny is um, the only thing I'll say is since I wrote that bio, since the book came out, which has only been a month, my location has changed. My husband and I have made a move. So we're living in Nashville, Tennessee now. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Uh, it just goes to show you, it's it's kind of like the thing where as soon as you print business cards, your phone number changes or mm-hmm. your right. job changes. <laughs> Yes. Like yeah. it's like, yeah, as soon as that's in my bio, then we don't live there anymore. But we we yeah. you know, have a special place in our heart for Pasadena and it's just it's a hard time in the world to live in a really densely populated area. So Yeah. 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 Well, I know today we're gonna talk primarily about your new book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. Uh, To start with, I'd love to hear a little bit of the backstory, right? Your last book, Indestructible, was super personal and told a lot of your story. This book Mm -hmm. is obviously birthed out of things you've learned along the way, but it's much more kind of instructional as opposed to kind of like primarily a narrative. Uh, So what led you to become so passionate about helping others write that, I mean, you started to find your voice and you felt led to write this book? Yeah. I mean, it's been kind of accidental. I say that all the time in the sense that when I left my full-time job over 10 years ago to set out on this journey to work in publishing, I thought what that meant would be that I was going to be writing publishing books for the rest of my life, which I am doing. And also what happened along the way was the first thing that happened was writing and publishing a book turned out to be way, way, way harder than I thought it was going to be. So I like thought, you know, when I quit my job, I was like, I have six months, I have enough money and savings to last me for six months. How could it be possible that writing a book would take me longer than that? And three years later is when Packing Light first came out. So so the journey to get from book idea to a book physically existing in the world ended up not only taking longer, but being far more frustrating. There were a lot of obstacles I bumped up against that I had no idea I was going to face. I when I quit my job, I mean, I very naively, like I didn't even know that I was, I didn't know what an agent was. I didn't know I needed an agent. I didn't know, you know, the difference between self-publishing and traditional publishing. I didn't know what a book proposal document was. So I was just like completely in the dark. So then when Packing Light came out and did really well in the marketplace, I was obviously thrilled that, that the book was doing well, but I was shocked to find out that although the book was doing well, I still wasn't making a full-time living from my art 
because mm. you just get such a, as an author, you get such a small percentage mm-hmm. on a book that the way authors are surviving now is not most authors is not by selling books, but by selling ancillary products that go along with their books. Mm-hmm. So I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I, you know, I was like living as minimal, minimally as possible. Um, you know, I think my rent at the time was like 480 or something like that. And I was like, you know, spending $30 a week on groceries and, and I still couldn't make ends meet. And so I was like, I'm going to need another way to go about this. And so I started working with other writers who wanted to become authors and kind of showing them the way, like teaching them, here's what an agent is. This is if, this is how you know if you need one. Here's how you put together a book proposal document. Here's why you do that. And walking authors through that process. And in that process, I started to see that a lot of the experiences that I'd had in my own journey becoming an author were totally universal. Like everybody else, regardless of whether mm. the person I was working with was a very accomplished you know, business person who had never written a book before, or maybe a stay at home mom who was like, I don't even know if I, ha- if there's a reason for me to write a book, but I feel like I have this story in me. Or maybe it was someone who had written several books before and had experienced a lot of success as an author, but really wanted to, to make this their best book ever. Regardless of who I was working with on that spectrum, we were all having many of the same experiences, same insecurities same frustrations, same mm-hmm. obstacles, same, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I was like, wow, there's something really powerful about that, that helps me get over this idea that because I'm having these insecurities, maybe like, I don't deserve to be an author, or I, you know, I don't really have something to say or whatever it is. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, on top of all of that, I started watching how all of us were having an experience with the writing process that was really transformative in the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and then in the midst of all this, as soon as I'm having these epiphanies, my personal life completely falls apart. I went through a divorce. I realized that the relationship that I had been a part of was not what I thought it was. My now ex-husband and I had been really involved in the church together. And because of that, I had like a complete dismantling of my faith and a, a period of time of just like complete disillusionment and thinking like, what, who can you trust and what can you trust? Mm. And what I did was the only thing I knew to do, which was to sit down and write about it. And I wrote the whole story start to finish, which turned into Indestructible. That was my second book. And, you know, I mean, I could go down a whole rabbit hole here, but that was another interesting experience trying to publish that book and realizing there were different obstacles with that type of a story because of, you know, some legal issues. And also, um, it was so different from my first book that people were like, wait a second, I'm confused. Cause I thought, you know, packing light was like this young Christian girl, like setting off on a, a path to sort of find herself. And then indestructible was just, I had changed so much that it was a different story, yeah. but all that to say that whole experience has brought me to this place where I believe deep down in my soul that writing has the power to create positive change in your life. Mm -hmm. There's so many people out there who want to write, but who talk themselves out of it because they feel like they don't deserve to, or they feel like, you know, maybe nothing will ever come of this. And so what's the point? And I feel like my role is to, to to equip people and encourage them to enter into the writing process because of how much it has to offer them, regardless of whether they ever hit the New York times list or, you know, get a traditional publishing contract or, or, you know, sell 50,000 copies of their book or whatever, like no matter what ends up happening with your writing, it's worth it to sit down and do it. And that's why I wrote this book. Gosh, I love that so much. I, I, I love this so much, not only just because it's, you know, what you're saying about the process of writing and how important it is, it just, it strikes a personal chord because I am in the process of, of writing and have been mm-hmm. engaged in a daily practice of writing for years now as an academic, actually, but, mm. but also um, am in the process of translating my research for a wider audience and writing a book in that regard. And so a lot of what you write in this book just so resonates. But also I love how you named all of these areas of the writing process. And you know, even you noted about some of the publishing process and the agents. And there's so much demystifying that needs to happen. And so I'm grateful for that work that you're doing, let alone, or you know, kind of even setting that aside from the ways that this book just encourages folks to just just write, like just write and seeing yeah. all these ways in which just showing up to write every day is transformative. 
So I am, anyways, I know I already said I'm super excited to dive into this, but. um, I love it. I love that you have a personal connection to the topic because it's, there's something about experiencing it personally and anecdotally that when you hear the data, you just go like, cause there's tons of data to back this up too. Mm -hmm. But when you hear the data, you, I think if you haven't had an experience with it and you hear the data, you go like, really? But if you've had an experience with it and you hear the data, you're like, thank God there's like, I'm not crazy. This is not crazy. This is really working. (laughs) Yes. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, yeah, as you were so much of what you were writing in this book, I was like, yes, yes. Like I have experienced that. I know what that's like. And, and I just love that you get to be this big cheerleader for fellow writers to help us along the way, um, regardless of where we are on the spectrum of writing and what we're doing with our writing and what it looks like, like your words resonate so meaningfully. Mm. So I am grateful. I'll, I'll start by just saying thank you for this book um, well, as a fellow writer. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. You also talk in the beginning of the book about how words are really powerful, which again, I would wholeheartedly agree with. And this is a phrase that many of us, we might kind of hear and nod um, you know, when they hear, um, but not really go too much beyond that. Again, I would wholeheartedly agree with it, but I recognize, you know, we're all in different spaces when it comes to that understanding of how words are powerful. Can you tell us a little bit about why do you think words have such power and maybe just expand on this phrase? Sure. Well, I mean, I think from a therapeutic perspective, the reason why words are so powerful is because of, um, I mean, you guys would explain this, know this better than me, but because of what's called affect labeling, right? When Mm -hmm. something really challenging happens to us and we have an emotional experience with it, there's something about putting words to it that actually diffuses the emotional experience and helps us. I mean, what's actually happening is you're moving the experience from one part of your brain to another part of the brain. So when we have an emotional experience with something, we're having an experience in our limbic system, which is a lower, um, it's a super important part of your brain. I talk about this a lot in the book and this is what we're accessing when we're Mm -hmm. writing, but you know, it is called like the, the more primal part of your brain or sort of like a, we think of it like a lower level functioning. I, I don't necessarily think that it's lower level, but it's a more, yeah. uh, it's the part of our brain that holds trauma. It's the part of our brain that thinks in images rather than words. It's the part of our brain where like the fight or flight response lives. And so when you have, let's just say something mundane in your daily life, like someone cuts you off in traffic and flips you off you might have a really emotional response to that that you can't even really explain or describe. You don't really know why you're so agitated or upset by it, but Mm -hmm. you're having this emotional experience with it. And let's say you get to work and you're talking to a friend and you're like, you know, this thing just happened to me. And your friend's like, interesting. Well, why did that upset you so much? And you say, you might not know at first, but as you talk about it or as you put words to it, you're like, oh, I know why this upsets me so much because this has happened to me so many times before in my life. And the story that I make up about it is X, Y, and Z. And so this is why therapy is so powerful. It's why having you know a good support network is so powerful. And it's why the power of writing is, is as powerful as it is because you're taking an experience that, that you only could connect to in an emotional way and you're, you're labeling it with words. And when you do that, it diffuses, it, it moves it to the frontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that can make more logical, rational decisions about a thing. And so... Um, yeah, I think that's the, the big reason why it's so powerful. Yeah. No, I I love that. You actually start talking about something that I was going to ask you about a little bit later, but I'm going to I'm going to go off with this now cuz you just brought it up. But you you did talk quite a bit in the book about, you know, our limbic brain versus our prefrontal cortex, and I really love how you describe this in a way that isn't too dense or too difficult to read. It it really makes sense. But you describe how our limbic brain is like that old filing cabinet in the garage and the prefrontal (laughs) cortex is like our house or our living space and it's tidy and clean and, you know, everything has its place. And that that daily writing practice connects us with the limbic brain and helps us to organize that space of that filing cabinet in the garage. So as someone who writes each day, this, again, this totally resonated, um, including where you write about like finding those phrases or, you know, I know when I've identified memories or analogies, connecting with that limbic brain, like it shocks me how like I'll be writing something like, where did that come from? Like, oh my (laughs) goodness. 
So can you can you expand on this a little bit more and maybe kind of linking to how the ways in which writing creates that space, maybe perhaps for healing and how connecting to yeah. that limbic brain kind of opens that up? Yeah. So the phenomenon is really interesting that we, we, so moving forward with the analogy that like you live inside of this house and then you've got your garage out back, maybe you store like your, the blueprint to your house out in the garage, just because you don't ever go out to the garage to look at it doesn't mean it's not there. And just because you never pull out the blueprints to your house to look at them doesn't mean that they don't exist. You know, I mean, even if you were to like rip up or burn the blueprints to your house, the blueprint to your house is still the blueprint to your house. There's no getting around it. Mm-hmm. But most of us from inside of this metaphor sort of like live in the house. We sort of throw all the junk out into the garage. We just try not to think about it. And we pretend like it's not there. The same is true with what's ever happening in our limbic system. There's a lot that's happening in our brains that we don't think about on a daily basis. That's why it's called subconscious. So because we don't think about it on a daily basis, we assume we just don't have to worry about it. The problem is it's depending on who you ask, like 80 plus percent of our daily behavior is driven by what's happening in our subconscious mind. Now, our brains have done this on purpose for us to help make life easier. If you had to sit and think mm-hmm. through every single time you like brush your teeth or drive mm-hmm. to work or do the things that are your the road activities during the day, you'd be exhausted. You'd burn way too many calories. And so your brain has automated those things to try to help you. And the problem is that a lot of the behaviors that we've automated are, you know, worked for us for a period of time and are just are no longer working for us. So the things like, you know, at the beginning of a year, when everyone's thinking about New Year's resolutions, the things that we think about wanting to change about our lives are those things that are grown out of those subconscious thought processes that live in our brain that we don't know about, that are dictating our daily behavior. And so we're having these results in our life that we wish we weren't having And the problem is a lot of us approach creating change, you know, back to the metaphor, sort of like tidying up the inside of the house, thinking that's going to change the garage. And it doesn't, it doesn't touch the garage. Mm -hmm. So we, what we do is we say like, this year is the year that I'm going to go to the gym every day, you know, and, and, you know, to use the most common example. And then when we get to February and we've already abandoned our New Year's resolutions, we're like, what's wrong with me? I'm not a very disciplined person. We have all these things that we say about ourselves that just aren't true. The fact of the matter is the behavior that we're getting in our life is it grows out of what's happening in our limbic system. And most of us just aren't in touch with what's happening in our limbic system. So through a process like writing or also therapy or also other modalities like yoga, for example, or other sort of like body work exercises, we can start to access what's happening in our subconscious mind. We can pull it up into our frontal cortex and we can actually shift and change behavior much easier than we think we can. You, If you change behavior from the frontal cortex, you're going to feel like you're white knuckling it. You're going to feel like you have to exercise all this discipline and it will only work for a certain period of time. The, the minute there's a blip in judgment, the minute you get tired, the minute you've burned too many calories from a mental standpoint, your brain will, go, will revert back to mm-hmm. uh, responding to your unconscious mind and you'll go back to the old behavior. So rather than, you know, this, this is where I get really passionate about it, rather than telling yourself, like, I'm just not disciplined enough to work out, or I'm just not disciplined enough to, you know, take care of myself, or this is just how my life is. I've just always been living paycheck to paycheck. And I just can't, you know, that's just never going to change it's just how it goes. Rather than saying that, what if we could say, what if we could dig in to what's actually happening in our brains to unpack the thought processes that are living outside of our awareness that are creating this emotional experience that are causing us to act in this certain way that are producing the result that we're getting in our life, what you'd find, because this is what I have found and what so many of my clients have found and what the the data shows is that you can actually produce meaningful change in your life. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take the kind of effort that you think it does. It does. Your life does not have to be a constant arm wrestling match with, you know, your sort of like the devil on your shoulder as we, as we tend to think of it. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, Robert yeah. and I are even at going back and forth in our chat box right now, just being like, yes, yes, yes. Like we totally <laughs> just are with you on this. It's awesome. Yeah. I love that, that this idea, and this is something that I use with my clients, right? Of 
being kind of compassionate with one side of you, even if you say, okay, that, that tool that I've learned how to use over my lifetime, it was adaptive. Now that tool does not fit this situation. It's not getting the results that I want. So we're going to try to learn some new tools, but that doesn't mean like, oh, that part of me is so terrible. I just have to wrestle it down. Right. Like, but kind of saying, okay, we can make changes compassionately. And I, Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. So you even uh, you even address people in this book that might or you know that might be listening that say okay but i'm not a writer right so for folks that say okay I don't, i'm not trying to publish a book maybe right like that's not i'm not setting out with that in mind you would still and you make the argument in this book that like a daily writing practice obviously with all these benefits is still massively beneficial right 100%. can you talk some to people like that might fit in that who say look i'm not worried about publishing contracts but like I decide I want to sit down and, and journal, but like it never works out. I look at a blank page and say, I don't know what to do here, right? Like, well, yeah. how would you say to tangibly or practically incorporate something like this into your life if massive writing books isn't isn't your your goal? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say about the book itself is, you know, I'm I'm the founder of Find Your Voice, and at Find Your Voice, we have a lot of products and services that serve authors or aspiring authors. But the book itself is actually not written to authors; it's written to the very people that you're talking about who, mm. you know, don't aspire to publish anything, but want to engage in a regular practice of writing as a way to produce meaningful change in their life. And I think the number one thing that we need to do in order to set ourselves up for success, to have a regular practice of writing in our lives is just to change our mentality about what it means to be a writer. And I tell this story in the book, but I say, you know, it used to be when I would go and speak in front of a huge audience of people pre-COVID, I would ask uh, people in the room, the first thing I would ask is how many of you in here would call yourself a writer? And these are rooms like, you know, I'm speaking at like corporations and sometimes like creative conferences and um, in front of people who, you know, that don't have publishing aspirations. So even in the best case scenario, like let's say it's a creative conference where you might get like 10% of the audience to raise their hand and say like, oh yeah, I would introduce myself as a writer. Then I say, the next question I ask is how many of you in here write, compose, and send at least three text messages or emails every day? And of course, there's sort of like this like laughter murmur in the room and everybody, of course, raises their hand because very few of us can say, unless you live off the grid, you know, very few of us can say that we don't write, compose, and send at least three messages a day. Mm -hmm. So then I say like, well, what does it take to be a writer if it isn't just putting your butt in the chair and, and doing some writing? And I try to debunk this idea that writing is like this elite club that you can only be a part of if you get a degree or have a publishing contract or get paid for your words or whatever. Writing is communication. It's like, it's just as basic as that. Writing is um, self-discovery. Writing is um, a way to capture memories from your life and, and choose what you want to remember. Writing can be a means of processing. It can be meditation. It can be spirituality, it can be prayer, it can be all these things. And so why are so many of us counting ourselves out of the group of writers simply because we don't meet, we don't check, 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 meet the qualifications. And what's funny is when you, the the people who you think are inside of the club, when you talk to them about how they feel about themselves as a writer, almost always you'll find that they count themselves out of the club too. That people who um, people who have published tons of books, people who are making a full time living from their writing, people who are who have the degree from the university, like the best university that's out there, you know, people who have been paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to write their book or millions of dollars to write their book. Those people say the same things. They say, like, I have so much self-doubt around the writing process. I'm worried that, you know, it was a fluke that I wrote that book that did really well. And the next book I write is going to be terrible They've dealt with writer's block. They've um, felt like, you know, nobody's ever going to read this. This is just pointless. It's a waste of my time. So all the same things that you've wondered about your writing, they're wondering about their writing too. And what I hope that does for people is it just normalizes the fact that this is what it is to be a writer. I make the joke in the book. I'm like, if you want an an initiation to the club, this is it. This is your initiation. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like the fear and the anxiety and the spinning and the the wondering if it's ever going to matter for anything, like, congratulations, you've you've been initiated Mm -hmm. to the club. (laughs) So I think if we can debunk those myths we have about writers and the writing life first, then we can opt into this quote unquote club and that helps us get over the mental obstacle to actually sitting down and doing the writing. And then of course, 
in the book, I walk through all these like practical things to do with what time of day you write and your space and, you know, scheduling writing into your calendar and that kind of stuff. There are all kinds of practical things to do, but I feel like until you do the mental work of deciding that you are allowed to be part of this club, none of the rest of it is going to be helpful. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really helpful to see how you articulated that and, and even naming, like you were, you were mentioning all those ways in which writers are like, but I'm not part of the club. And I know imposter syndrome often is, you know, woven into that too. You know, I just think that's really helpful in how you, you named that, but you're right. Like we all are writing in one way, shape or form each day. And so, you know, kind of taking ownership of that is important. I mean, I was just going to add really quickly yeah, too please. that there's, I feel like there's like a justice element here too. Yes. For me mm-hmm. Because, you know, traditionally the voices that have been celebrated in our culture are uh, like from a very narrow background and point of view. And it, I mean, literally, when you think about history books being written by old white dudes mm-hmm. and the fact that history <laughs> has been mistold to us through generations, but how else would we know? that history was different without seeing words written from a different perspective that showed us that this wasn't how history took place. And, you know, the other thing is there's like layers, layers upon layers of oppression and injustice here, because for, for centuries, you know, we didn't teach women how to read or write. We didn't teach people of color how to read or write. We didn't teach, you know, any other cultures how to read or write. So, so it made it really easy for the history books to be written in the way that they were. Um, and, you know, you think about living through this period of time that we are right now, the, the last almost year of our lives of this global pandemic, if we allow only a certain select few voices to talk about what it meant to go through this time as mm-hmm, a whole, mm-hmm. then we only get this really limited sliver of a, of a view of what it was like to be alive in 2020 When the reality is my experience was different than your experience was different than my neighbor's experience was different than, than anybody who's listening experience. And without the written word, we just don't even have access to the the breadth of humanity. Um, I mean, thank God someone like Anne Frank wrote down her story and Victor Frankl wrote down his story. And I just think there's just, if you feel like your story is the one story that nobody cares about hearing. I just, I want you to, to say that out loud to yourself and really think about what you're saying and what that means. Um, you know, cause people say all the time, like to me, they'll say writing my story just feels so self-indulgent. And I'm like, is it self-indulgent or is it you taking up some space in the world and saying my story matters, my life matters, my experience matters. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I So good. I, yes, it's so good. So I didn't I mean, I our listeners will know that my background's actually in social work. So what you're saying about social justice and needing to hear the diverse voices, it's just I mean, you are speaking my language and um mm. and I know you talked in the book about, you know, how we do need to hear more diverse voices. And you talked about in the book around um, how we have history books that are written largely from one perspective. And so it is really important that we create space for and empower and and listen to the stories of so many other, so many others. So man, I'm really glad I got out of the way a moment ago <laughs> for you to expand on what you you said. Speaking of space, though, I did. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about where you you write in the book around making space for writing includes. Um, well, first of all, you have a quote where you say, "Making space for writing is making space for you," and I do love that. And it, it nods to what you were just saying um, about you know how we we need our stories matter. Um, but then you also write about the importance of making physical space, making space in your calendar, and making mental space. Can you talk mm-hmm. about? each of those a bit? Yeah. So these are sort of the three categories that I feel like we need, where we need to make space if a writing practice is ever going to be tenable for us. And I start with talking about making space. I think in the book, I start with making space in your calendar. So what I teach writers to do is to actually schedule their writing time into their calendar as if it were any other appointment. And the reason is because Think of what happens when, you know, if you schedule a doctor's appointment, for example, and you know that if you miss the appointment, you're going to owe a fee or, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, like lose face or whatever at the doctor's office. When that's on your calendar, you treat that as a priority and you're not going to 
can't, you're not going to not show up to the appointment unless an emergency happens, you know? And I think we, we need to treat our writing practice the same way simply because it is representative of how we see ourselves in the world. So just like you were talking about, you know, I say like um, the way that our relationship to writing is our relationship to our life. The parallels are absolutely uncanny. You know, I say writer's block doesn't exist. Writer's block isn't writer's block. It's life block where we're stuck in our writing. We're stuck in our lives. Mm. And if you feel that you can't carve out five or 10 or 20 minutes a day in order to do some writing and listen, I'm running an organization. I've got five or six employees. I've got a six month old daughter. I'm married. I'm like, I have a lot of things on my plate too. So I understand that our time is really limited and valuable and it can be hard to carve out that time for yourself. But if you can't carve out five to 10 to 20 minutes a day for yourself, I just want you to ask the question from a place of compassion. What does that say about how I see myself? What does that say about how much precedence I give myself, my own heart in my life? And you know, I think what you start to see is that if you're just like, oh, no, my life is too chaotic. It's too crazy. I can't find five minutes a day. There's something deeper going on there than just the writing. It's like, mm-hmm. well, if you can't write for five minutes a day, it's your, your life is not going to end. But if you can't find, find, find five minutes a day to spend to yourself, to give to yourself, then, you know, I, I, to me, I see just a deeper disconnect there. So I start with calendar, then I move to your physical environment, because I think our physical environments also reflect our internal environments. And I've worked with several clients who were like, there's just nowhere in the house that I could possibly, you know, reserve for my own writing. And I think actually the period of time that we're living through, this is more real than it's ever been Mm because you've got moms with multiple kids at home or homeschooling and then you're working at home and your partner's working at home and like everybody needs a quiet space and it's, you know, it's kind of a mess. But I say to those moms, I'm like, what about the closet or what about the bathroom? And I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm just saying like, is there anywhere in your house where you can go and close the door and you can have five minutes to yourself? It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be special or spectacular. It just needs to be a place that you get to call your own. And I quote Virginia Woolf in the book who wrote A Room of One's Own. She talks about how without a room of one's own that a woman can't possibly Right. And of course, mm-hmm. in the period of time she's writing and she's talking about something much deeper and bigger. She's talking about like a woman needing financial autonomy and, and, and a space to herself. But I think there's so much truth there. You know, it's like if if I can't find a space where I can be alone to get writing done again, what does this say about the broader scope of my life? How can I sort of advocate for myself show up in my own life, take up some space and decide like, I'm going to inconvenience someone else so that I can have five minutes to myself Mm -hmm. in my closet to reflect on my life, you know? (laughs) So anyway, so that's the physical space. And then mental space is, you know, writing is such an incredible meditative tool that, um, that this is where I really, in the part in the book where I talk about the parallels and connections between writing and a meditative process. But mm-hmm. what will happen as you sit down to the page and look at the blank page is all of the thoughts that have been bouncing around in your brain, like a pinball machine that you've not been aware of, will begin to come up to the surface. And your job in that moment is to pick one and go with it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and and to clear away the clutter, which is very similar to what you're doing in a meditative practice. So, um, so that's sort of the three-step process that I walk people through. And, and I think the biggest thing to take away is after I walk you through those three steps, I say, even if you sit, if you make space in your calendar and space in your, your living space, and then you sit down to the computer or the, the page, whatever, and you don't write a single word, you've already done it. You've already begun to reap the benefits of the writing practice because, the, you know, this is the writing practice. It's just showing up to it over and over again. And so you don't have to produce. It's, it's an area of your life where you don't have to produce anything. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to, it, whatever you write on the page doesn't have to be good. It just, you just have to show up and be there. Yeah. yeah. So hypothetically, and we'll just say this is purely hypothetical. Say there's one of the hosts of the show here that has tried to do some of this right, finds some time and sits down and says, okay, I'm going to make some time to write. 
but each time kind of gets stuck in terms of like, how do I get started? And then it leads obviously, you know, kind of the spiral of like, well, then I'm just frustrated and annoyed. And then I move on to things where I feel like I can be productive. I mean, they, in this hypothetical situation, I know you talk about expressive writing and the infinity prompt and ways to kind of like get going or ways to, uh, you know, someone says, okay, my story isn't that except right, right. What would I even write about? Can you talk some about either one of those, I guess, the expressive writing or the infinity prompt or anything that that would be helpful there? Yeah, I mean, I think the term expressive writing, I hope it's freeing for people because expressive writing is the type of writing that's been studied in such detail. All the data that I share in the book is around what the researchers call expressive writing. And expressive writing defined is just sharing your deepest thoughts and feelings about a subject on the page. So it's super Mm -hmm. simple from, from that front. There's no wrong way to do it. As long as you're sharing your deepest thoughts and feelings about a topic on the page, then you're doing it. You're doing expressive writing. So like I said before, like there's just, there's, you can't, you can't do it wrong. It could be a bullet point list. It could be one word that you write down on the page. It could be a short phrase to yourself, a note. It could be, you know, one thing that I'll do with writers who are feeling really stuck is I'll get them to start by doodling because doodling will help you access that limbic part of your brain where those, those hidden thoughts are living and so you might doodle for days before you ever get to the point where you where words start to come to you. And then you can, you know, doodle words on the page. It could be poetry. It could be, I can't remember if I said bullet point list yet, but a bullet point list. There's so many different ways that that expressive writing can come out that I hope that takes the pressure off for people. The grammar doesn't have to be correct. The spelling doesn't have to be correct. Nobody ever has to read this. You can, you never have to go back and read it. You can rip it up and throw it away when you're done. So there's just really, really no wrong way to do this. I think what happens is we get in our heads and we think like, um, I want to write something great. Or you're like, maybe what I write today, I could share it on Instagram. And then you're halfway through your writing practice and you actually shoot yourself in the foot. You sabotage yourself because the minute that you bring an audience into this is the minute that you cut yourself off from your deepest thoughts and feelings about a subject. And so it doesn't mean that nothing you ever write from an expressive writing standpoint, becomes something that you can share, but you just have to write first and then wait to see if you're ready to share that later. So I think, did I answer the question? I feel like there was one more thing I was going to say, but it's it, lo- well, it left me. No, I love that because you even referenced right there. I know there's a chunk where you talk about write now, edit later, right? And yes. I remember I read a, a, mm-hmm. a Twitter thread a couple weeks ago that was referencing I think it was Jerry Seinfeld, but I could be completely wrong, but who uh, had talked about he uh, kind of envisions in his head like a writing staff and then like an editing staff and they are completely separate mm-hmm. people so they can't be in the room at the same time. Yes. But so I love that just the idea of like just write, don't try Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's two perfect. different parts of your brain. And yep, I think it's right. so this is why teaching the brain science in the book is so important because the part of your brain that you live in most of your day, like that you bring to work with you because it's your higher, that your, your prefrontal cortex is your higher functioning part of your brain. It's the part of your brain that is logical and analytical. It's the part that you need to survive in the modern world and the part that you get praised for in the modern world. Like, you know, think of how we say about people like, wow, she's so smart that what we're saying is someone who, you know, can understand and, and, Um, conceptualize something, regurgitate it. That's usually what we're saying about someone who's so smart. That's all frontal cortex work. And we need our frontal cortex. However, that is the part of your brain that is the editor. And if you can't find a way to disconnect from that part of your brain, you'll have a very hard time getting any writing done because that part of your brain is going to go, you really want to use that word? Mm -hmm. There's got to be a better word for that. Mm -hmm. Or it'll go like, I think that, I think you don't need a a comma there. No, you definitely need a comma there. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so you can't even get the words on the page because you're so concerned about the grammar or the spelling or the word choice or whatever. Or you're like, that's a dumb way to start a blog post. Don't do that. Hmm. So we have to find a way to disconnect from that part of our brain to go deeper and to, to really unearth the concept that we're trying to express and then come back later. If you do want to share, we can come back later with a different lens, with that editing lens and say, is this the strongest way to start? Or might there be a better way to start this, you know, article or like, oh, you use the word, whatever word it is five times in this article. Could we come up with a different word that you could, you know, maybe like use some synonyms so that we could have some diversity in word choice. But those conversations all have to happen. They all have to be secondary to the first, uh, first draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
No, I love that. I know uh, I know we're getting somewhat close on time and there's so much we could talk about. So I'll just say to listeners, if this if you're enjoying this conversation, you should definitely pick up this book because we've mm-hmm. only scratched the surface yep. uh, of the questions that we could ask and stuff we could talk about. But could you talk a little bit uh, about the infinity prompt and like what that, you know, if I'm someone to say, okay, I'm on board. I think writing is, you know, would be great. I want to start literally like I sit down and kind of, you know, are there some kind of beginning questions, things like that? Is that something that you could summarize effectively? Or would you say like, no, nah, just go grab the book? The infinity prompt, there's so much to say about the infinity prompt. I mean, I, I can, I can, um, yeah, I can give like a really basic overview of the, of the infinity prompt. But what you need to know is this prompt is both an attempt to help you execute on the expressive writing. So help you access your deepest thoughts and feelings about a, a topic. And also secondarily, it is, um, it is built around the idea of a cognitive behavioral model. So this idea that I've been kind of touching on without calling it mm-hmm. that throughout yeah. the episode, which is that our thoughts yeah. create a, an emotional environment. That emotional environment causes us to act in a certain way. And when we act in that certain way, we get a result that sometimes is not favorable to us. So it's built from that. But the basic idea of the infinity prompt is you take a situation or a circumstance from your life that feels particularly charged. So it has an emotional charge to it. And then you write in three different stages. First, you start by writing the facts of the situation. So you pretend like you're a journalist or a reporter, and you're reporting on the facts of this particular situation. You'll find, hopefully, if you're doing this, if you're you're really taking the time and space to do it, you'll find, hopefully, that sometimes it's complicated to really name the facts of a situation objectively, especially if the situation is very charged. But you first start by listing the facts of the situation The second step of the process is to write your feelings about the situation. And the third step of the process is to write your thoughts about the situation. And what most people find is one or the other of these is easier or harder for them to do. So maybe for you, it's much easier for you to to, to say what your thoughts are about this circumstance than it is for you to define your feelings. Or maybe for you, it's the opposite. It's much easier to define your feelings than the thoughts. The point is... The whole point of the exercise is that separating the three is tricky. It's difficult. (laughs) What you start to realize as you, uh, well, let me back up and say the most beautiful thing about the prompt is you just never run out of things to write about because every day you have circumstances from your life that are emotionally charged. And for those of you who are starting this writing practice who have never done this, you probably have a few decades of material to draw from. (laughs) But then, so that's the beauty of it. but, But as you work through it, you realize that you know, defining the facts of the situation might get sort of tangled up with your feelings about the situation. And it's not always clear what's a fact and what's a feeling. But as you learn to separate these two, you actually, you do exactly what I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, which is affect labeling. You begin to put labels to things that help you more clearly understand what actually happened. So if I were going to do this around, you know, like I have a, a heated conversation with a sibling, for example, And I sit down and I try to list out the facts of the situation. I try to say like, well, first, you know, my sister said X. And then I'm like, did she really say that? Or did I interpret it that way because Mm. I was so upset? You know, and then you say, well, then I said, why? And then you think, did I really say that? Is that what I just, I thought I said, because, you know, I'm going to overestimate my (laughs) communication skills in a conversation and probably underestimate the other person's. So as you begin to sort of like peel back the layers, you realize you you come to a little bit more of awareness of yourself and you also start to just ask the important questions like what really did happen? And am I, is my reaction to this situation overinflated from what the actual circumstances were? And if so, why? And I'm sure you guys know the common therapeutic phrase, uh, if it's hysterical, it's historical. So you can sort of like start to see, okay, my reaction to this is bigger than what the circumstances actually warranted. Is that because it's actually connected to something much older? And you can actually begin to do your own sort of therapeutic process on yourself. I'm not, I, I'm, I truly don't mean to overstate that because mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of having a therapist. Mm-hmm. I do have, I've had a therapist on and off for most of my life. And I'm a huge fan of, my dad's a clinical psychologist. I'm a huge fan of therapy. However, I am also an advocate that writing as a process can be an incredible ancillary tool to your own therapy. You can actually speed up your own healing and growth 
by using writing as a tool between therapy appointments. So this is yeah. a great tool, whether you, you just, you feel like right now in your life, you don't actually need to see a therapist. You just kind of need to do some personal processing, or maybe you want to see a therapist, but you don't really know where to start. You kind of would like to dip your toe in the water before you jump in the deep end. Like you don't know who to go see. And you're, you're sort of nervous about the idea of like self-reflecting with someone else. It's a great tool if you're already seeing a therapist and you just want to speed up your progress and growth. So to me, I'm like, it's a no brainer. Everybody can use this as a way to unpack their history, to, to really understand what's happened to them, to stand outside of their own story, to see themselves as the hero of their own story, to process their emotional reactions to things, to grow and change and become the best version of themselves. Yeah, I love that, and I'm I'm glad you uh, you mentioned that because I was actually I was gonna pop in when you were done and say like, hey, just to head off any like angry emails we're gonna get, you do uh, mention in the book that like writing is therapeutic, and also uh, I'm mm-hmm. like an advocate of therapy, and obviously yes. you, mm-hmm. both of us are, and uh, you uh, mentioned some considerations, limitations, right, like things like that in terms of writing about super traumatic experience, right, like things like that. So yeah, uh, no, I appreciate I appreciate your saying that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as folks probably engage in this practice of writing and start digging things up from, you know, um, their limbic or you know, their limbic brain and areas that they haven't thought about in a while, it might be good to just to hear, you know, that invitation to go find a therapist as you're engaging in this practice of writing um, and as things surface. One, one question we do like to ask our guests, you know, I know that, you know, there, there's a lot of heart behind this book. That's very clear and very evident through, throughout this book. But, but one thing we would love to hear from you would be, what is your hope for this work? I mean, you've poured so much mm-hmm. of your heart into this work. You, you know, clearly are passionate about encouraging others to write, but, but what, what is your hope for this work? Um, it's such a great question. I'm glad you asked people that. It's I feel like it can be sometimes hard to admit our hopes for things because hope is linked to mm-hmm. its natural opposite, which is disappointment. And so it can be hard to admit what you hope for something because if it doesn't happen, then you feel disappointed. But mm-hmm. I, what's interesting is forever, for as long as I can remember, I have wanted to write a book that hit the New York Times bestsellers list. And this, this will make sense to people who start to follow the work that I do, but I have given up on that dream for the most part. Not that, not, you know, it it would be great if it happened, but I think it doesn't mean to me what it used to mean because of everything that I know about how the publishing world works. But an alternative goal is I've, I've thought about how wonderful it would be to get people to sort of sign like an, uh, like a virtual agreement that they're going to commit to do a regular practice of writing for, what the data shows is it takes 20 minutes a day for four days in a row. So hmm. that, that's all you'd have to commit to, to basically sign this petition. And I have no idea where this number came from, except for that it's just a big number. But I thought several months ago, I was like, it'd be so cool to get a million people to sign an agreement saying that they're going to commit to write for 20 minutes a day for four days in a row, because hmm. I'd be so curious to see if we could get a number that big to commit to this process, what sort of shifts and changes we'd see structurally and culturally in our world in a time Mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like we're living in this like really like ripe time for change. And also because it's so ripe for change, it's very tender and vulnerable time Mm -hmm. as a, as a world. And especially in the United States, for those of us who live here, it's just been like a crazy, a, a crazy, you know, like the craziest election in all of history and everything that's happened. It's just been it's been nuts. Like, you know, 2020 was nuts for everybody, but I would just be curious to see what would happen if we all committed to this process of self-discovery and really understanding our own motivations for things and recording our experiences so that we could better understand each other and feel more connected to each other and experience more empathy. I'd, I'd be so curious to see what could happen. I think, I think we'd see really, amazing shifts in the world. So, mm-hmm. so that would be a goal that I have for this book. Obviously it's very lofty, which is in line <laughs> with my personality, but, but it'd be fun. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Well, let us know when you have that link for, okay. for everybody to sign <laughs> to, up so that we can, sign the agreement. yes, we're going to have, we're going to set that up so that we have an agreement for a million people. To be I love writing. it. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> 
listener, if you want to connect with Allison, you can find her on facebook.com slash let's find your voice on Twitter at Miss Allie Fallon or Instagram at Allie Fallon or visit her website at allisonfallon.com. You can also go to findyourvoice.com and you can find more about that organization. You can buy this book, The Power of Writing It Down, A Simple Habit to Unlock Your Brain and Reimagine Your Life or any of her previous books, wherever you buy books. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for our listeners? My closing thought is go buy the book. <laughs> um, but tr- but seriously, try a writing practice, even just for four days. And I promise you, you won't regret um, giving it a shot. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com.